And my name is Dee Kelly. Yes. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to have the privilege of uh, opening up this passage of Scripture um, for us this morning. I am going to pause before I do um, to make mention of two announcements that Melissa didn't mention, and I'm doing that because I have the microphone, and I guess that I can right now. Um, the first is, would be very awkward for Melissa to mention it, but it's the first one that's on the bulletin itself. It is um, something that we're celebrating today, the uh, Monday of District Assembly a uh, week ago, um, a little longer than that, June 6th. Um, Melissa was ordained an elder in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a really big deal. We have um, kind of scrunched up a word that she's been ordained an elder, and so we're now calling her Melder as uh, a term of respect. So at any point in time, you're welcome to do that. It's not only a big deal in her life, it's a big deal in the life of the church as well. And so we want to pause in the midst of all we do to celebrate that. I know that some of you have plans today, maybe you're doing something special for a special father, but let me give you a little insight real quickly here. Um, the get-together reception is going to take place right after this service from 12 o'clock to 2.30 at the home of Rebecca Laird and Michael Christensen, and their home has the address right on your bulletin, but it's just at the bottom of Cannon Street. A um, couple houses on the right-hand side as you come to the bottom of the hill on Cannon Street. And it's a come and go. Uh, finger foods are there. Let me tell you, most dads would be thrilled first and foremost to get dessert first, which is what you're getting right at the end of the church service with cookies, which is fantastic. And then free finger foods. So if a dad can save 30 bucks on today's lunch, that is one of the best gifts that you could give. So, Yeah. I, I recommend you come join us before or after your activities. We would love to have you. The second announcement I just want to mention is that um, you know how much we um, love Scripture here, how important it is for us to be studying Scripture, that it is the revelation of uh, Jesus Christ, the Lord we serve. And so um, we're going to embark in another month on a journey together, reading through the New Testament and using what we're reading on Sunday morning services, and I will tell you more about it as we get closer, but I just want to prepare you ahead of time that I'm looking forward to a span where we get a chance to do that together um, during about an eight-week span that will cover the end of July and uh, August as well. Um, we are jumping into a passage of Scripture that you've heard us refer to sometimes as one of the lectionary readings for a given Sunday morning. The passage that was read, Psalm 42, is one of those readings for today. The lectionary is a collection of scriptures that covers in many ways the breadth of the Old and New Testament over the course of three years. There are typically, for any given week, one Old Testament reading, one Psalm reading, one Gospel reading, and a second New Testament reading. We don't feel like we are so bound to that that we can't go in another direction. I sometimes do. 
But more often than not, the passage that we will talk about on a given morning comes from one of those four readings, which is true this morning for Psalm 42. The reason I mention that, though, is that the four readings this morning hang together so beautifully, so powerfully, that I'd like to just use this morning to make reference to all four of those. So if you're following along your scripture, your smartphone, I don't think we have all of them up behind me, but um, I'll make mention and you can listen along or go there and dig it out yourself or take a few notes and go back and read them yourself. We're starting with this passage that is Psalm 42. It's a difficult passage in that it speaks about difficult times. The title for this morning's message is Discouraged Disciples, and I know we typically think of disciples really not coming into being until Jesus came and called together the disciples, but when we look at Old Testament scripture, there are people who were followers of Yahweh, followers of God, and so this passage to me speaks about what it feels like to be in one of those discouraging, downcast moments. It feels a little bit like it should be an oxymoron, discouraged disciples. And I get that. I mean, disciples have had this wonderful insight into what it means to be forgiven. Having received salvation and the inheritance that is ours of joy, how could there be anything for which to be discouraged? And yet... Anyone who is honest about the faith journey knows that there is no one who's immune from those moments where it feels like life's circumstances are pressing in and pushing down, and it just feels like your shoulders can't hold the circumstances that have come. So it's not really an oxymoron at all. In fact, it is in some ways, one of the most honest pieces of the faith journey is to say, be prepared because those times come. But this passage doesn't only speak to disciples or the four passages will look like. It speaks to anyone who's facing difficult times. There's a message of hope that's in the midst of it, but lest we move too quickly to the message of hope, Let's recognize the difficulty of how it feels and what it is to be in one of those places where, as the psalmist says in the refrain that we find in verse 5 and in verse 11, Oh, my soul is so downcast. Why is it so discouraged? Most likely, Psalm 43 was part of this song. It's kind of like the third verse. Verse 5 is the refrain of those verses that precede it. Verse 11 is the refrain of those verses that precede it in Psalm 42. If you go to Psalm 43, you'll see at the end of that shorter chapter, five verses, the fifth verse is the same refrain. Why, oh why, my soul so downcast. 
so disquieted or discouraged. So here we have three verses that speak about the ways in which the life of the follower of Christ or the follower of Yahweh finds him or herself in such a difficult place. One of the pieces that I find that's so powerful in this particular psalm is in verse 7. It speaks about deep crying out to deep in the midst of the waterfalls that pour over me. Deep crying out to deep. I'm convinced there are times when the deepest part of who I am, when it begins to be known by me, the pain, the hurt, the shame or discouragement that has been stuffed down so far and comprises at least a portion of that part of who I am, when it starts to be known to me, simplistic answers don't work. Little refrains and cute quotes don't answer my need in those moments. I am longing, I am longing for the deep richness of my creator, the depth of God to somehow touch that deep part of me. Because the other answers I've received don't seem adequate at moments like that. I'm going to shift just a little bit and pushes toward the other Old Testament reading. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19. And this is the story of Elijah. It starts right there at the beginning of the chapter. And the story of Elijah is what would appear to be a great story of triumph. Elijah has defeated the prophets of Baal. Wahoo! And then Elijah gets word that Jezebel wants to put Elijah to death within 24 hours. Puts a price on his head. Well, that's not exactly what Elijah thought success was going to look like. He is the bane of her existence. He embodies everything she hates. He is, for her, the epitome of the things that she wants to get rid of so that the rest of her journey can go on without any pushback, without anybody speaking against her. So, Elijah runs away. He goes to Beersheba. He finds a place under a broom tree and just kind of Mumbles about his journey until he falls asleep. And then, I don't know what to call this being other than the, the food angel. A food angel shows up. I, I would love to have a food angel because this food angel prepares food, warm, it's just so delectable. And Elijah wakes up and sees the food and is instructed, eat and drink and does so. And it happens again. I love that the Food angel makes house calls and does it more than once. I'm waiting for this to happen, my journey, but 
instructed to eat again because the journey he's going to be on is a long one. So he does so, and then he takes a 40-day trip to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. There he finds a cave and crawls in. Wow, that's the life of a prophet. How exciting, success has come my way, I'm going to live out my days here in a cave 40 days away from anyone. Talk about discouraged, about feeling alone. Where is God? God shows up, basically asks Elijah, what are you doing? I don't know if it's said with a sense of trying to goad him to move on or if it's just a simple inquiry. What are you doing, Elijah? And then Elijah goes into his rhetoric about all of the things that happened and and just keeps talking about how he's the only one left of those who are faithful. But this wonderful, faithful person has taken refuge in a cave, 40 days walk away from what he hopes is any confrontation at all. And God shows up. And the description there in verse 12 begins to talk about the, the lightning and thunder, the fire, the wind, the earthquake. I mean, it is as if the world has gone nuts. But God's not in any of those things. Those are just evidence of what God can do. In the NIV, it says, and then in a quiet whisper. But I love the NRSV, which translates this by saying, in the sheer sound of silence. Elijah finds God. I don't know what a sheer sound of silence is. But I'm convinced that there are times when silence is deafening. In fact, very often it's the peace about discouragement that feels so overwhelming. If God just would speak, I would feel peace. I would be comforted. I, I, I would be able to compose myself. I could last a little bit longer. But God's silence? I can't handle that. It is as if the sound of silence is palpable. But into that moment, God comes to Elijah and says, carry on. Galatians, stay with me. Galatians chapter 3 is the third reading for this Sunday morning. Paul in chapter 3 is talking about faith. It's passage that starts at 3.23 and goes through 3.29. He is talking about what faith does, that when faith enters our life, 
we are no longer in need of the law to be our disciplinarian. The law is no longer there to kind of hold us in check. Faith allows the Spirit to come into our life, and we're no longer bound by the law, but inspired by love, because God is love and God's Spirit dwells within us, and there is this magnetic pull that pulls us in the direction of what it means to be a faithful disciple, a faithful follower. Here then, Paul says, everything begins to change. Because there is no Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female, because we are one in Christ. Wow! the boundary lines apparently come down. But I know that's not true because there still is Jew and Greek. There still is slave and free. There still is male and female. But Paul is saying, for those who are in Christ... The division lines, the boundary lines, the demarcation of who's in and who's out, the we versus them, it's gone. What's so difficult about that is that it throws off my identity. I know I'm good if I can vilify someone else. What happens when I can no longer do that? I have a magazine subscription I get. It makes me feel cool because it's about tech. It's, I think, tech for dummies probably is what it is. But I've gotten it for, I don't know, 15, 16 years. It's about a 20-year-old magazine. It's called Wired. This is an old, um, not old, but a last year's um, November 2015. And the headlines here are this. Let's change the future. And then subheading underneath that is... Race, gender, and equality in the digital age. That is so avant-garde. That is so out there. That is so cool and on the edge. And Paul said it 2,000 years ago. It is this beck and call from Paul that says, into your culture, you are seen through a new set of eyes. Don't be mistaken about this. The disciple follows into a place where there is no longer any boundary by race, Jew nor Greek. There's no socioeconomic boundary between people, slave nor free. There's no gender boundary anymore between male and female. We are one in Christ. Now you can add to that list, and I probably ought to pause right now and let you add whatever is in your head about the boundaries of we versus them. It's not limited to those three pairings. It's whatever creates this division 
where I can justify my own righteousness because of the actions, poor actions, of someone else. That I can justify what I have because I can demean or demonize the other. That I can claim my place because I've earned what someone else doesn't deserve. It gives me permission because there is an other on which I can place all of those things that makes me feel just a little more righteous. And in case you don't know this, God hates that. Paul says so clearly, faith means I no longer need the law to discipline me, but it takes me to a place out of love where I no longer see those boundary lines anymore. I'm no longer given permission to live that way because living that way is ultimately destructive. And God calls us to be the best of who we are because redemption is all about that. But we so love to not deal with our own stuff so that we can place it onto somebody else and let that other person be the carrier of that stuff. About 20 years ago, I did a skit that I did for a couple of organizations. I'm not going to do the skit right now, but I'll give you the gist of it. It ties into this right here, and the storyline goes like this. There was a CEO of a company who caught wind that her 401k tanked and was incredibly distraught at all that was lost. Later in the day, she calls in the director of communications and goes on this long discourse about how the most recent advertising campaign was so poor and was the cause of the poor sales among the company and was going to be the downfall of that particular organization. The director of communication later that afternoon calls her husband, who had come home early from work to take care of the kids, and in the course of the phone conversation goes on this long rant about how he forgot to pick up the soap when he came home from work, and that was the one thing she asked him to do. As it was moving toward dinner time, he moved into the living room, and his daughter happened to walk through, and feeling discouraged about a whole lot of things, not exactly knowing why, but knowing for certain he needed to tell her that she was going to have to stop taking dance lessons because the family finances were not going that great and the future was a little uncertain. The daughter, feeling so frustrated that the world was unfair, walked into the family room and pinched her little brother on the shoulder. Little brother screamed, the dad not knowing what was going on, sent him to his room, and as he makes his way to the room down the hallway, the poor innocent cat passes to the right, and he just reaches over and gives the cat a kick. Let's kick the cat skit. The truth is, how much better the world would be if when the CEO got word that her 401k had tanked, 
that she got in her car, drove over to the house where the cat was, and kicked the cat herself and saved all of the problems of the four other people in this world that had to suffer through that. Or even better, if she dealt with the issues of where she had placed her sense of security and what her fears were of the future and wrestled with the issues in her own life instead of pushing them on to somebody else who pushes them on to somebody else who pushes them on to somebody else until the poor cat ends up at the vet needing repair. Let me take you to the story of the man from Gadarene or Gerasene in some of your Bibles. The story is found in chapter 8 of Luke. This passage begins around verse 26. And in this story we find that Jesus has made his way away from Galilee, across the Sea of Galilee is what appears, to the area on the other side, away from the Galileans, and enters into this town. You would think if Jesus is going to make a change that he'd go to the mayor or some of the chief politicians or maybe stop in the synagogue and interact with the chief priest or someone like that. No, he finds a man who finds himself out in the tombs. He's a man that scripture says is possessed by a legion of demons. In fact, that's what he calls himself, legion, because they have taken control of him. This is a story certainly about Jesus bringing healing to a man who desperately needed help. I would propose to you that it is also a story about a town, a group of people, who had the potential to be healed as well. And we'll see how that goes in this story. It says that this man um, did all kinds of things that made it necessary for the townspeople to shackle him up and try and bind him, but they could never quite hold him. Sometimes he'd run naked out in the wilderness, and one of the gospel writers says that he would take stones and basically stone himself, cutting himself in a variety of ways. This is the person to whom Jesus goes. Here is where I think the townspeople missed so much. Jesus, in essence, says to this man, what are you doing? Jesus pronounces a healing into his life, gives him a new future. Then they find the man seated at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. But the townspeople were afraid. It doesn't say they asked Jesus to leave because of economic loss, though they certainly lost some things when the pigs all went into the... uh, the sea as a result of the demons going into the pigs. 
They didn't ask him to leave because somehow he was creating a riot. There doesn't seem any indication of that at all. It would seem to me that they are asking him to leave out of fear, fear that their system has been so totally upset that now they are confronted with the issues in their own life. This is a beautiful story. I I have no doubt that the man did some difficult, painful, wrong things. But it appears as if the townspeople have allowed this person to become their scapegoat. All of the things that they don't deal with as a town get placed on him. If we can make him this crazy, chained up, evil figure, then it gives us permission to look at ourselves in a far more righteous way, gives us permission to carry on with the way in which we engage life. I don't have to deal with my issues if I can pour them on to someone else. The fear is that now, if this person is no longer the other, clothed in his right mind, at peace, healthy, whole, if I can't demonize that individual, now I'm left having to confront the issues in my own life. That is frightening. I can't always cope with that. If you don't think this is normal, then you've not looked around very much. This is what we all do all the time. A culture that provides for us the other group. We are informed as to who the others are and we get to avoid all of the issues in our own life because they become the repository for all of the demons that we leave unaddressed. And it comes out in such violent and horrific ways And because it comes out in that way, we get to demonize them more. Highlighting each and every mistake that that other group makes. And then creating a narrative that highlights how important it is to keep them at bay. When in fact I have not dealt with my own stuff and I perpetuate the very system that I am critiquing. Or let me flip the table. We accepted that from others as well. There are some of us here this morning whose discouragement and downcast nature is because you have started carrying the weight of shame that someone else has put on you. Someone else's anger that has landed on your shoulders and somehow becomes your responsibility. Some CEO or parent or other 
that has never dealt with the issues in their own life and somehow speaks a word and all of a sudden it becomes your burden, your heaviness to bear and you've carried it far too long. Jesus says to Elijah, what are you doing? You don't need to bear the weight of Jezebel. You don't need to bear the weight of that nation. Just follow me. Jesus comes to the man from the people called the Gadarenes. And he says, no more. No more. You weren't meant for this. This is not the thing for which you were created. You are not to bear the shame that someone places on you, the anger, the hostility that someone else says is yours to bear. It is not yours. No more. Let it go. And see what happens when you follow me. The things that need to be carried, I can carry, Jesus says. But more than that, let those who need to deal with them deal with them because I will be faithful to them as well what would it mean in your family system in your place of work in your culture in your church if you just said no more to those things and let Jesus be Jesus let Christ carry those things. It then gives you the privilege to let down the dividing lines, the we versus them, whether you're on the receiving end of being the them or whether you're on the calling side of the us, wherever you fall in that formula, and for most of us it's both, the only way that it begins to heal is to let both sides of that equation be given over to Christ. Oh, Lord, no more. This is not the thing for which I was created. Save me from the shame. Shave me from the anger. Save me from the stories and narratives that have been placed on my, sto my shoulders because I can't bear it anymore. No wonder I'm downcast. No wonder I'm discouraged. No wonder deep cries out to deep because for far too long I have lived in the catacombs. That was not where you were meant to live. Nor me. We were called to live with Christ in a resurrected life. And when we receive that freedom from Christ, we then maybe have the chance to say, I will never again do that to someone else. Never again will I put up these dividing lines, these divisions that separate us, but I will step into this place of unity, of love, of peace. I believe this morning these readings call us To hear very clearly the line, Oh my soul, why you downcast, why so discouraged? And then the closing line of that chorus, 
I will put my hope in you, O Lord. That's when the inheritance of joy begins to come. That's when my pain begins to sing a melody, a tune I've never heard before. Freedom. Clothed in my right mind. <laughs> oh, oh, Lord, could that be so for us this morning. A new mind. A new set of eyes. A new life. I'm going to invite the musicians to come up. I'm going to have a closing song. It is a clarion call. To in the moment, allow the silence to speak. I want to say that one more time. Even in the midst of music, even in the midst of words that you might be saying, let the silence speak to you. So before the musicians play, we're going to pause for that silence. You're going to bring us out of that. Let God's Spirit say to you, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? No more to the things you were never intended to bear. And no more to be complicit in creating those dividing lines that move us away from unity in Christ. Let the sheer sound of silence begin to speak to you this morning. <laughs>